this is episode four of the What We Talk About When We Talk About Mind podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Brian McVeigh. He's a prolific author and experienced anthropologist that's made incredible contributions to the field of psycholinguistics, both modern and ancient. He attended the State University of New York at Albany, where he received an undergraduate degree in political science, as well as professional training in anthropology. He also received his PhD from Princeton University in the same field. He was also a student of Julian James, who wrote the book called The Origin of Consciousness that we discussed last week in episode three with Marcel Kuiston. Brian's also a specialist on Japanese culture, a subject he has written about and worked on as part of his time over on that continent. Today, we're gonna to be talking about a few of his books, as well as how they relate to psychology and language. One of these is called The Psychology of the Bible. And the segment we discuss looks at biblical texts and statistically analyzes the frequency of some words related to mental processes. The second book we're gonna be talking about is called A Psychohistory of Metaphor, which looks at the importance of metaphor for generating this notion of mind that we're very familiar with. He also introduces us to his concept of conscious interiority, which is one of the ways that we use mind and mind space. I'm very excited to discuss with Brian what he talks about when he talks about mind. For today's hat, we have the word ka. It comes to us from the Egyptian language and from the Egyptian hieroglyphic writing system. It's represented by two hands uplifted above the head, sometimes with some details in the hands, sometimes not. And oftentimes there's a little stroke right below, but sometimes there isn't a stroke as well. This word is oftentimes translated as mind, soul, spirit, double, fortune, but it also has other fairly confusing uses as well. For example, the name is oftentimes used in king's names. You'll see ka somewhere in the middle, like kanaset, for example. But sometimes ka is like a location. For example, in the Middle Egyptian story of the shipwrecked sailor, the shipwrecked sailor ends up going to the island of the ka. So it's being referred to as a space, although nobody has found the island as far as I understand. So that's the hat for the day. It's the Egyptian symbol ka with two arms uplifted. Our book recommendation for this week is A Grammar of Metaphor. It's written by Christine Brooke Rose in 1958. And it looks at a corpus of old English literature, such as those works of Shakespeare and Chaucer, among others. And it looks at metaphor as a very simple definition, one word replacing the meaning of something else. And the book's claim to fame is that it focuses on the grammatical relationships between idioms of interest, not just the idea content or what they mean. And Christine Brooke Rose goes through the number of different forms that these idioms can take, and she analyzes the grammatical relationships between the words. I definitely recommend it if you're looking for something introductory that's going to be based on more modern texts. Again, the book is called A Grammar of Metaphor by Christine Brooke Rose. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, perhaps where you studied some of your extensive time that you spent in Japan, studying in a cross-cultural standpoint, and as well as some of your biggest academic influences? Sure. So 
as an undergrad, I just went to a state school and I studied political science and Asian studies. I was always interested in philosophy. Then I went on, I got a master's in anthropology. And actually before that, I spent a year in China because I was interested in Asia. And then I joined the grad school at Princeton University to get a PhD in the anthropology department. But I wanted to do, I wanted to uh, investigate uh, psychological anthropology. Even though originally I was interested in China, I, I developed an interest in Japan. So for my dissertation, I decided to go to Japan and I wanted to study spirit possession because I was interested in the mind uh, from a sort of a philosophical point of view. Uh, you know, what is the mind? How come people claim that they get possessed? And if you've ever watched cl classic possession. It looks like there is two or three people inside an individual. So I was fascinated by that. And while I was at Princeton, I had a hard time preparing to go into the field, looking for academic works that tried to explain the nature of spirit possession. They would just say, oh, it's trance or it's hypnosis. That doesn't, it, it's not for one thing, but it doesn't really tell us anything. Nobody seemed to be interested in spirit possession. Lots of descriptions in the ethnographic literature, but no real theoretical understanding. And then I remembered, oh, wait a second. When I was in high school, my mother gave me a book by this guy, Julian Jaynes, and he had a whole chapter on spirit possession. And I was always fascinated by what, by what Jaynes had said. In fact, in the late 70s, I, I, I even wrote him a letter and he, he wrote back. So he was always sort of in the back of my mind. And as it turned out, very fortuitous for me, James happened to be at Princeton. So I marched over to the uh, psychology department, which was housed in the building right next to the building that where the anthropology department was. Even though they were very close, there was no interdisciplinary love. I mean, they, the psychologists, anthropologists did not really communicate with each other. But in any case, so I went, I talked to James. He was very uh, enthusiastic, very welcoming. He encouraged me. And so I went to Japan. I finished my dissertation on spirit possession. And then I ended up living in Japan. And I, uh, I pursued other interests, uh, not just psychological anthropology. And then I came back to the U.S. I taught University of Arizona for a while. But something was missing. And I decided that I am really going to devote myself to Jane's. I really think that Jane's offers us a completely new paradigm to understand human nature. And not to be too dramatic, I really do think he is the, Dar the Darwin of psychology. I think he really he doesn't answer all the questions about psychology, but he certainly answers a lot of them. So in any case, but something was missing. I was at the Univers University of Arizona. And I decided that I should really pursue James, not just by looking at ancient history, not just by studying spirit possession and language, but by going into psychology. And I decided to go into mental health. So I became a mental health counselor. And that's what I do today. It sounds like based on your perspective, James's book, The Origin of Consciousness, and his chapter on consciousness being generated by both language and by means of metaphor. It sounds like that was very persuasive to you at the time as a 
scholar during your formative years. And was that something that you kept in mind while you traveled through Asia and conducted your anthropological studies? Yes, in fact, it was. So I, I'm, I'm not a natural born linguist, but I've had to study a number of languages. And what strikes me is no matter what language you study, there are going to be metaphors that are going to work when they attempt to describe psychological processes the way that Jane's described it himself in his book. Uh, so whether it's Chinese or Japanese, in fact, in the case of Japanese, I did publish an article on mental language. The article appeared back in the 90s in the, the Journal of Pragmatics. So, and the claim I make in that article is, is very Jamesian. In fact, I use the, this sort of theory he developed that you're very well aware of about how in early times, the, all psychological vocabularies went through these different stages and Jane's list four stages and basically begins with the body and then becomes a little more abstract. We, we have bodily experiences and then we think that then people would assume that there's some sort of entity inside them, some sort of agency. And then eventually after a number of centuries, what would happen is you would have subjective consciousness. But the idea here is that subjective consciousness is it's like a ladder. It's resting on these earlier stages of uh, development. And so in any case, that's what I try to show in this uh, article on Japanese mental language. You remarked that the chapter that really captivated your attention by Julian James's book, The Origin of Consciousness, was the one on possession that he had a whole chapter. Well, I remembered that excitement that you had. For me, it was when I read book one, chapter three, I believe, The Mind of Villian. I got about halfway through that chapter, and I immediately knew that I would be spending a good portion of my time and energy into reconciling those citations and counting up some of the words, which ultimately ended up happening. But it's interesting how we read something and it captures our attention. Now, moving on, I'm very curious. I've read through a number of your books, and... I'm familiar with most of the background literature and the concepts without obviously the personal experience that you've had and, and as well as your unique training. But you mentioned the word interiority when it comes to mind and mind space. And I have my own understanding of it, but would you be able to explain just for the listener, what do you mean when you talk about in interiority with respect to the word mind and psychological processes that, that, that people go through? Right. So rather than the word consciousness, I often use the word conscious interiority or just interiority. Interiority is sort of abbreviated form of conscious interiority. So the reason why I do that, and this is you know, something I've struggled with for decades, when we talk to people about Jane's and we say the word consciousness, people have no idea what you're talking about. They think they do. And they jump to all these conclusions. And of course, as you know, James meant something very specific when he used the word consciousness. So I try to come up with a word that was related to conscious or consciousness, but was something different and also had this connotation that I think James would agree with that consciousness, one of the things, one of the features of consciousness is this belief of 
internalization or this sort of uh, inner spatialization that occurs. Uh, people have this idea that their self is in their head and looking out their eyes, um, if you will, that there's, and of course, that's really the basis of mind-body dualism. And so in any case, so that's why I, I use the word interiority or conscious interiority, because I want people when they read it or hear it to say, wait a second, I thought he was talking about consciousness. What does he mean by that word? Because when I, many people, when they hear consciousness, as I said, they think, oh, it means cognition, it means thinking, it means sensation, it means perception. Of course, that is not what James meant at all. And uh, that, that word, and I just wrote a blog about this for the Julian James Society, about how the word consciousness itself is a hindrance to understanding James, because people park so many of their assumptions into this one word, and then they try to tackle James, and they get very confused because they're not really reading or I might say listening to what James actually had to say. So in any case, I don't know whether it's a useful idea, a good idea or not to uh, use this word conscious interiority. But just to repeat, like I said, I think it at least gives the, the sense that we're talking about something inside the person, this belief that there is, to use a word that James used, an introcosm, a sort of inner cosmos inside of us. If I understood you correctly, according to the maxims of James's theory, is it accurate with the following summary? Conscious interiority is an expression used to describe the personal first person experience that native English speakers have about thinking processes and how they interface with the world and they use the word mind as if it were a container metaphor, and they use idioms related to the vision modality, such as seeing clearly, smart people being bright, and their worldview is basically predicated on this mind space, which has a very specific linguistic basis that's generated by metaphor. Is that a fairly accurate description yes. of it? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. You know that chapter in James's book, book one, chapter two, consciousness, where he explains how, according to his theory, metaphor generates consciousness. It's a real bear. And I, I do consider myself fairly competent and learned in some of those topics, but I may remark the quantity of times I had to reread that chapter in order to get a good understanding. And I had to say it was at least 40 to 50 times before I started getting the gist of it. Is this a topic you feel comfortable addressing and explaining to us how you understood that chapter in James's book? When I read the chapter on metaphor, I, I have to say, yes, there were parts, especially when he's talking about the um, metafire and metafran and paraphran and parafire, that's a little bit tricky. And you really have to stop and think of some examples from your own life to make it stick. But, you know, as I said before, when I was talking about my own experience in academics, when I, anytime I would study a language, I would look for metaphors. And what, what struck me is that there are definite patterns in all languages of the world. And most of the time, 
when they talk about psychological processes, it's going to have something to do with the heart or some sort of organ, less commonly, but you, you do come across expressions having to do with the head. So to me, when I was reading Jane's, it just made so much sense. And it to me, it's so obvious that there must be such truth to what he has to say, because you can find overwhelming evidence of what he had to say. But I think the real challenge with Jane's is we have to take a uh, historical linguistic perspective and actually trace out the development of these metaphoric ways of conceptualizing mental language. The locality of thinking, I think this is a very interesting topic that it doesn't get enough treatment. So on this podcast, I've had the privilege of interviewing people from different linguistic backgrounds. And I asked them these questions. In fact, I have a young, very talented young man from China, whom I'll be, whom will be interviewed tomorrow. And I remember when I was doing the preparatory meeting, I had to tell him that some people get a little bit freaked out when they get asked, where does thinking happen? Because what comes to pass is the following, a lot of people, to use your expression, firmly believe that thinking happens here, but you see remnants or, excuse me, vestiges of prior ways of thinking when you ask a few more direct questions. So, for example, a lot of people will naturally say that thinking happens in the head and their brain, but ask people, where do feelings take place? Where does courage sit in your body? And all of a sudden, you see people get enveloped truly enveloped by a feeling of confusion mm. as they start pointing to their body because they feel quite unsure. And I bring, a, I bring to their attention expressions like, follow your gut, follow your heart, my heart sank. And I said, well, how do you account for these thinking processes that have a locality in the heart or to know something by heart? And there's, there's a very keen and important silence that follows and I think, which is why I think it's so important to discuss these topics. Now, taking, jumping onto the next lily pad from the last question you answered, tell me about some of the books that you've written, because I know psychology and language have been two very frequent foci, and I'm interested in learning more specifically about what you've done that's intersected those two fields. Right, so probably I should begin with a mention of this book here, The Other Psychology of Julian Jaynes, Ancient Languages, Sacred Visions, and Forgotten Mentalities. So the word here, other, is supposed to show that there's a whole different type of psychology that looks at history and looks at major changes in human mentality. But the problem is when you go to most universities, when you are exposed to most works in psychology, that tradition, though it's there, some people recognize it, it's sort of neglected. So in any case, in this book, I pay a lot of attention to the lang to ancient languages. I look at Sumerian, Middle Egyptian, Hittite, one or two other languages. And I have to acknowledge that this is sort of a preliminary study. I do use statistics. And I try to make the argument that if you look at these languages, these ancient languages that were used before about 1000 BCE, before, according to Jane's, people became conscious, that these languages lack a robust set of psychological terms, what we might call mental language. 
You can find words that seem to be psychological in nature, but my argument is that actually those, it, these languages are very weakly developed in terms of mental language. What you do find, not surprising, are a lot of words that refer to what we would call religion. So it's almost as if, in fact, I try to show this statistically with those languages as words over time that referred to religion started to decrease. Words that referred to what we would call psychological experiences started to increase. So you have this sort of relationship. And again, it's very difficult to show that unless you have a large corpus and unless you compare a bunch of different languages. So admittedly, some of my claims I make are preliminary, but I, I do try to use uh, statistics. So in any case, so that's the uh, so that's what this book is about. And then also this book, The Psychology of the Bible, I also pay a lot of attention to language. So this book, of course, it looks not just at language as evidence for what James had to say. It looks at a bunch of other things that biblical scholars have uh, explored. But of course, I'm looking at things from a, a very different angle as the, the subtitle reads, Explaining Divi the Divine Voices and Visions. So those are basically the, of, among my books, these two books here are the ones I, I suppose I would make the claim really look at ancient languages the most. I'm particularly interested in the ancient languages because there aren't a lot of people, as you're doing, taking some of these statistical approaches to difficult languages and trying to do that on a broader spectrum. I know there are some great efforts going on right now to digitize and accelerate the pace at which cuneiform tablets are being translated, but still academia is a bit slower to adopt some of these newer methods as is kind of evident with the publications that I've been most recently exposed to. Now, I'm curious specifically about your book that has to do with psychohistory and metaphor. Could you talk a little bit about that book? Sure. So this book here, it's called A Psychohistory of Metaphors, Envisioning Time, Space, and Self Throughout the Centuries. So this book actually is a little more philosophical. There's no real statistical analysis in this book. I don't look at particular languages, but what I do try to do is look at these major philosophical categories, time, space, and the self. Um, actually, to be, to be more specific, maybe we might say uh, mind and also consciousness because self is, a, I think, a little bit of a vague word. But in any case, what I try to do is show how I, I would assume that many people assume that time is just time, space is just space. I mean, what could be more obvious? In fact, some people think that about the mind. It's just something very obvious. I have this experience. I label it. But actually, if we look carefully, and if we pay attention to text, we pay attention to language, throughout the centuries, these notions, time, space, the mind, have been understood in very radically different terms. The main theme is metaphors. How do we metaphorically conceive of time, space, uh, and the mind? You know, I recently read a book related to, that is what's called the Neuroscience of Time, and I believe the gentleman's name is Dean Buonomono, and I discussed it a little bit in the first episode with Ognin Madic. And 
I remember a common theme of what this neuroscientist said was, we have to subject language to spatial terms and we have to make liberal use of metaphor in order to generate idioms and to generate the language and the meaning necessary, or the language necessary, excuse me, in order to convey meaning to other people about something as complicated as time. Because really, if you think about time and space, even the, the models that we have from the scientific community of, of you have this web and it kind of bends a little bit and the ball curves it, this, is, this isn't really how it looks like, especially when you consider time as a dimension, but it's what our language can afford at the time to describe something much more complex. So I appreciate why that's a very worthwhile topic to write about. So could we tie together and could you, could you tell us a little bit about how mind is a word? How does that fit in to psychohistory and metaphor and some of the other topics that you just briefly discussed with us? Yeah, so the, again, I think there's a, an assumption many people make that the ancients have always had a notion of mind as an abstract entity, and that this is something that the great philosophers had an interest in and, and they studied. But, you know, probably for most people, they lacked an abstract notion of mind. And the, the thing about mind that we have to keep in mind is that it has to come up with concepts that are adaptive. Because after all, we are products of evolution and uh, the, you know, to kind of be a bit reductionistic and simplistic, I suppose, it's all about survival. And so if you're living in a society that is not developing a language that can deal with technological changes, that can deal with changes in how people relate, and this is where it gets a little more complicated, but if, if your notion of mind, the language you have, is not adequate to keep up with changes that the mind itself is undergoing, you won't survive. And really, that's what James was all about. I, I mean, James tried to, he viewed this emergence of consciousness as a grand adaptation, a, a great learning experiment on, on the part of uh, humankind. And so basically, that's what um, mind is, uh, is all about. I'll, I'll just read you two or three sentences that kind of sum up what I try to do in this book by exploring what I call metaframing, our ever increasing capability to step back from the environment, search out its familiar features to explain the unfamiliar and generate metaphoric or as if forms of knowledge of location and vision. This book demonstrates how using analogies and abstraction have altered spatial visual perceptions, expanding our introspective capabilities and allowing us to adapt to changing social circumstances. So again, that's a tall order to try and tie all those things together. But what I'm saying is that the way humans actually experience reality has changed. And I think that that is reflected in the very language that we use. I completely agree. And I have some things I'd definitely like to share about that, but just so we're square with the listener and in order that we can be specific, could you just provide us just, just a very basic oversimplified working definition of metaphor and also explain to us why it's such an important concept for that book? 
I guess a simple definition of metaphor would be using something known to understand and describe something unknown. And I think the issue with the word metaphor is for many of us, we think of literature or a class in English, poetry, but the way that many people, uh, including us, I think, when we think of metaphor, we're thinking of it as a basic psychological operation. Metaphor defines mind. And that's why I use the word metaframing. You know, to, to metaframe is sort of like a step above metaphor. There are other processes. Metaphor is a key process of metaframing. And basically, I think that's what the mind does constantly. It's taking in information, it's recalibrating, it's trying to understand new experiences. And when it comes across a novel experience, it can't come up out of nowhere with a new set of linguistic terms. It has to rely on something older. It has to rely on something that it's already familiar with. And basically, if you look at the history of science, the history of science is really just a polishing off of old metaphors and trying to come up with a, a more refined set of metaphors, if you will. I, I mean, I remember when I was in the seventh or eighth grade and science teacher said, oh, when we think of the atom, we think of a, a little solar system with subatomic particles circling around. And she said, but that's wrong. That's not really what physicists think. And you know, to this day, I still struggle <laughs> with that idea, but it shows you for, the, for a while, that was a useful metaphor to understand what an atom is. So that's just one example. But when it comes to something like consciousness, the problem, the way James talked about consciousness is we have this experience and people just assume that this, it's something natural. And the way I describe it, it, the words I use are reflecting a reality. But of course, that reality is always changing. Psychological experience is, is changing throughout the centuries. And we have to really pay attention to what were the words that people used to describe what we might call mind. Do you believe there are any major gaps in human knowledge about the importance of language with respect to psychology? Like, do you think that there are any areas of research that are neglected and there needs to be more work on? Well, most definitely. I mean, I think the work that you've been doing is what has to be done. I, 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 I don't think that can be stressed enough because that's where, as I said before, that's where the evidence is. I mean, and, and there's a lot of evidence. I mean, we don't have written languages, excuse me, we don't have written texts for all languages, of course, but for a fair number we do. And so once we come up with a hypothesis based on Jane's understanding of the, the, the metaphoricity of mental languages, all we have to do is follow those texts. And also, you know, we've already talked about this, but it goes back to this idea of metaphor being a basic property of mind, or really that's what mind is all about, metaphor. And to elaborate a little bit on that, in psychotherapy now, they're beginning to recognize how useful metaphors can be in clinical settings. This shows you how metaphors and language and mind are so inseparable they're beginning to see how using metaphors actually can heal people. So if someone uh, has suffered some sort of trauma, uh, the idea is you know, maybe use mental imagery and a clinician can present metaphors to the client or to the patient or the patient him or herself can come up with their own metaphors 
But the idea is that the mind actually changes. So when we talk about metaphor, you know, we can look at it historically. We can, we can observe, we can trace the, the development of metaphoric language throughout the centuries. But we can also look at how metaphors within one individual can have a huge impact in a clinical setting. And, you know, it's, it's fun to watch children try to use metaphors when they try to uh, describe something novel to them that they've never seen or experienced before. So again, it, it, this all goes back. And so there is a lot of work on metaphor in psychology that can't be denied. But to answer your question, as I said, I think that there has to be a lot more historical linguistic analysis. And I think that psychology has to go a step further and recognize metaphor. It's not just a trick of language. It actually is the fabric of mind. I definitely agree with you about how important metaphor is. And having gone through language training in a few areas, I find actually that it, that it too, it's quite neglected. In fact, one of the call to actions that I recommend in my the thesis, that my forthcoming rewritten thesis on the Egyptian language is, I think the notion of metaphor and how to negotiate idioms, identity, interpretation, and accuracy tests, I think these need to be included in introductory grammars because mm -hmm. they really don't get, they don't get treatment. And I even did an analysis of English grammar books that the teachers school children. The words like metaphor and idiom, they get touched on, not, they don't get called a trick of language and as the expression you just used, which James also used, but you can certainly tell that touching back to what you said earlier, it's definitely deprioritized with respect to its importance. And I definitely disagree with this viewpoint because this is a huge stumbling block to how we can better understand different cultures. For example, a lot of people, they wonder why do we have a hard time connecting with people of different races and cultures and languages and language families. And a part of it has to do with, I think we misunderstand the idioms that they use on a daily basis and how important that is to their culture. So I definitely agree with you that this is an underrepresented area. Now, what do you think a psychology would look like if we were to completely take out language? How feasible would it be to study human nature in the first instance if we took out these two important or this important aspect of language? Well, I, I don't think you'd have a psychology. You, you, you would not have a human psychology. So, you know, what I mean by that is you would not have a, a psychology that addressed issues that arise from culture, because basically that's what it means to be human. It means to have a culture, something that is external to the person. So it's, it, it's really difficult to conceive what psychology would look like without, uh, without language. I mean, we rely on language to learn about the world. We rely on language to cultivate and develop complicated systems of uh, symbolism. We rely on language to understand others, to build social relational networks. So really, language is not just a sort of add-on to what it means to be human. Language is what it means to be human. And I, of course, it's, if that's the case, then psychology should follow suit and acknowledge. I mean, you know, it's, it's not as if, as you know, psychologists think that 
they don't think language is important. And, and certainly there is a psychologist who specialize in linguistics. We know a lot about the neurology of linguistics, but uh, actually that's something I, I think I might say is that the problem I think is when we view language as some people do as more or less a neuroscientific issue. And the more we understand about the different parts of the brain that produce language, that receive language, well, that's the way to go. Well, of course, neurology has to be, the neurology language has to be understood. I mean, that, that, that can't be argued. But the point I, I wanna make is that I think psychologists who study language, especially the neurological aspects of language, have to be more open-minded to the role that culture plays, the role that socialization, not just in their own society, but socialization in other cultures, and to see that, you know, hopefully that way they, they'll come to an understanding that you really can't talk about neurology. The expression that I use is neuroculture, and included in, in culture, of course, is language, linguistic socialization. And it doesn't really make much sense just to study neurology. We're, we're talking about two things that co-evolve, two things that are very much inseparable, neurology and culture, or to be more specific, neurology and language. And how do those two things work together? I resonate very much with your comment about the importance of culture when analyzing some of these ancient problems. And with respect to the importance that neurology has right now, I may remark that Neurology in recent years, due to technology such as tomography and some, and some of these other fields, it has earned and it has definitely appreciated in the societal consensus among scientists, which is to say people think the brain is important. And I worry too that it's starting to become this panacea, which is to say that people think that we will get all of our answers by studying purely the brain. And I'm on your side here that there needs to be adequate, equal, but opposite cooperation among these fields because the brain isn't going to tell you a lot of things. In fact, this is a very clear basic fact in studying Egyptian as you, you well know, and something that disturbed some of my colleagues. The brain had no importance to the Egyptian civilization. They took it out of the nose and they discarded it and when you look at it, it is a pound of meat. It's a very special pound of meat that is a station of high importance in metabolic processes in the body in terms of how many calories it takes. And nobody, as you agreed, nobody can deny how important the brain is. However, the fact that the brain is disregarded by so many cultures and the words that we use to describe mental processes makes no use of the brain until very recently until after a, a scientist by the name, a Flemish scientist by the name of Vesalius published Corpora Fabrica or the, the fabric of the body, that it was then when the brain started to get much more importance because he depreciated the value of the heart and the stomach. So when you look at it from that perspective, you, you're forced to ask, what do we have left? And really what we have left is culture and we have the writings that people have produced. So I think, it is doing violence upon empirical data by ignoring anthropology, ignoring the importance of culture, and also coming to a new place and saying, wow, 
this is interesting because these people are quite different. They eat differently. They use a different writing system. I wonder what else is different about them aside from just the toppings on foods and maybe some physical appearances because also it cannot be denied that the anatomy between people of different races is quite the same. So you really, you have to unpack those cultural differences as you've pointed out. And you spent some time in Japan. Could you give me an example of one word that's maybe ambiguous or comparable to the English word mind? And also an example of a few idioms that the expression is involved with that are of high interest to you. Maybe just one, one thing that has to do with Japanese and metaphors and language. That is a, a Chinese character. In Japanese, it's pronounced uh, ki. Ki means something like air or some sort of flowing energy. It's a vapor. It's using expressions to mean wind, breath. It's a very, very fundamental concept in Japanese. If you studied martial arts, for example, Aikido, I means to bring together the ki. Again, I know it's probably difficult to see, but th there's probably, I don't know, maybe 150, 200 expressions with the word ki in it. And it's used in a psychological sense. And this shows us actually, even though there are some basic patterns, how languages develop uh, mental language that seem to be based on physiological experiences, the body centering around the heart and the stomach. In Japanese, they do have a lot of expressions using the heart, but most expressions actually have to do with key. And so to give you an example, if you want to say, I feel like going or I want to go, you would say iku ki da. So iku is the verb to go and then of course ki. And so the idea, what you're saying is there is a, a key of going. Or if you say pay attention to something, in Japanese they'd say ki wo tsukeru. Ki wo tsukeru literally means to attach the key to something. So you can see that this word presents a very different uh, metaphor for understanding, uh, for conceptualizing psychological processes. And I'm, I'm not going to go through all these examples, but in any case, you know, just to show you, there's the word uh, seishin. Seishin is often translated as mind, and it can mean things in a psychological sense, but Seishin can also mean something spiritual, which I think the, the reason why that interests me is because that's probably true in many languages where you have an overlap of words or concepts that have to do with spirituality, religion, and psychological events or psychological processes. So I've often wondered about that. Why is that the case? So for example, in English, the word psyche so psyche can mean the mind in a sort of technical sense, but psyche often has a sort of a, a spiritual connotation to it. And so Japanese shows us some universal principles, you might say, that in all civilizations, psychology somehow grew out of an older spiritual tradition. It just, it's something I'm curious about why is that the case? Why is there this conceptual overlap between the spiritual and the psychological? Kimotsure. That literally means entangled key. 
or key that somehow is all mixed up. Translated into English, it means confused feelings. So that's another uh, example of key. This is kind of an interesting expression. Kiwohiku. Kiwohiku literally means to pull the key. Translated, that means to analyze another's mind or to analyze another's thinking. And just one more example, kinonai. Kinonai means there is no key or the key is lacking. Translated, it means to be indifferent or not interested in something. There are so many of these interesting examples. And I think if we explore other languages, you can find similar cases where they talk about mind, psychological events, but they do it in a very unexpected, very different way than what we're used to. You mentioned a bit about the overlap between the Japanese concept of the key versus the English concept or the Indo-European language family-based concept of the mind or the psyche. What's interesting about that, I, I may recall from my study of some Greek terms. So in Greek, the term is psyche, it anglicized, it becomes psyche. But psyche in its earliest forms, it has a couple interesting uses that overlap with that Japanese concept of the key you mentioned, and I'll tell you why. The first is the word psyche can also mean butterfly. And the word psyche also means wind or moving force or that which, that which moves in the wind. And it is something that leaves the person's body when they die. So I too have seen this concept of moving force or life force. Yeah, life force, yeah. In Greek, Sihi, in Latin, animus, anima, and in Arabic, ru. And all of these languages, as Carl Jung noted in a very important chapter in a book called Modern Man's Search for a Soul, in all of these languages, including now we may, we may add to that list Japanese, there are clear affinities for these mental words and their affinities with words like life force or movement of force, movement of wind relating to people's intentions and so forth. So I do think that that has a lot of cultural overlap and tying back into a previous question, I think that's something that deserves a lot more treatment by some scholars that some scholars that are doing this work, most especially you. And I may remark furthermore that the work that you do is extremely special because it takes these concepts and it makes them approachable for a wide variety of audiences. And with that notion in mind, could you tell us a little bit about the latest book that you're working on right now? I'm working on a book on uh, the psychology of ancient Egypt. And of course, it's basically about Egyptian religion, but I look at it from a very Jamesian view. And what's exciting for me is that, as you know, Egyptian history is quite long. I mean, depending on where you want to mark the dates, I mean, you're going back at, at least 3000 BCE. And again, depending on how you want to define Egyptian culture up until, uh, up until the, uh, the, the first century AD or so, in any case, you're talking about two, three millennia. That's a long time. There's a lot of history packed there. A lot of really good examples of, I think, of how they had a different mentality. And James did talk a bit about ancient Egypt in his book. But what I am trying to do is 
go one step further and of course devote not just a chapter or two, but an entire book that analyzes ancient Egypt. A lot of scholars are kind of intimidated about, about Egypt and I definitely agree with you. We have to understand we can't use the word Egypt wholesale. We mean pre-dynastic times, about 3200 BCE, going all the way up through living coexistence with Roman times. And to allude back to your point about the importance of historical linguistics, this is a topic that I'm working on right now. It's the importance of synchrony versus diachrony. And synchrony is a study of language at one point in time, and that whereas diachrony is a study of language over the course of its development through time. And when you're talking about Egypt, you must necessarily have to pinpoint this. In fact, the gentleman who coined these terms and developed these axes, he said, if you're studying any text or any language and you don't clearly define the time period and the context of when you're studying it, it's going to be equivalent to trying to pin down a ghost. That's what he said, trying to pin down a ghost. And I agree with that. I think it's very convoluted, so I very much agree with your point. Now, I also wanted to ask while you were here, I know when I learned about, initially learned about Julian James, I was very excited when I heard snippets of him. He had a very powerful voice, it was deep. So my question to you is, could you explain for a listener unacquainted with Julian James, what was he like as a professor? And if you feel comfortable, answering, what was he like as a human being? Because he's certainly an interesting fellow to a lot of people. James, as a person, he did, as you said, he did have a, a very deep voice, but he was actually, in, in a way, soft-spoken. As a professor, he was very reasonable. He was very kind. He would listen to people who disagreed with him. In fact, uh, he would encourage people who disagreed with him in the, in the class that I took with him. He, he was all, in fact, I've written about this. He, he was a very humble man. And one thing that he said was not his quote, but he always used to say, a good scientist is willing to be wrong. And uh, that's always stuck with me. And I, I think that maybe explains why he was able to come up with so many fascinating ideas because he was willing to be wrong. He was a very principled man. I just regret that I didn't spend more time with him as you know, he passed away some years ago, but he uh, has certainly inspired me. Likewise, I think, I think he's inspired a lot of people for his interesting ideas and his contributions to psycholinguistics, which is still, I believe, developing to this day, thanks to works like those of James and the impressive catalog of books that you've contributed. Hey, Brian, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out and talking about some of your stuff. Well, thank you. Very happy to share uh, my uh, ideas, and uh, I hope that we can do this again.